Hey there, and welcome to Intrigue Out Loud. There's this meme that was circulating the internet a few months ago in, in the fall when Ukraine was waging a massive counteroffensive that shows this guy stirring his girlfriend awake with a huge grin on his face and saying, Hey babe, wake up. The Ukrainians just retook Izium and 15 other towns I can't pronounce. <laughs> It's silly, but that meme has really stuck with me because that's how I've been throughout the war, just transfixed, utterly glued to the TV and to news sites during these moments of high drama at the beginning of the war when Ukraine repelled Russian attacks and last fall when it was mounting attacks of its own. But over the last six months, as the wars entered this brutal, bloody, attritional phase with fairly infrequent made-for-TV moments, other events around the world keep grabbing my attention and, and keep grabbing the world's attention too. So as we await another Ukrainian offensive, another moment of high drama, it's hard not to wonder, or, or in my case, in many cases, worry that time is all of a sudden working against Ukraine and wonder slash worry that Russia's goal of breaking the resolve and solidarity of Ukraine's transatlantic backers is starting to work. That's why I wanted to have on Dr. Liana Fix. She is the Fellow for Europe at the Council on Foreign Relations, a security expert who's worked for the German Foreign Office and the European Union. And best of all, she joins me next. Hi, Liana. Thanks for joining me. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So let's start by getting a lay of the landscape in Ukraine. Uh, what sort of movement has there been along the front lines over the last you know, six months since winter began? Well, honestly, in the last six months, there has not been a lot of movement. So the main battle has really been focused on the city of Bakhmut. And there was a bit of a debate whether Ukraine was holding on to Bakhmut for too long of a time, that it was having too many um, costs and too many casualties in Bakhmut and that it could have been better for Ukraine to withdraw. The situation as it presents itself today is that Russia has not been able to take Bakhmut and that it has remained in Ukraine's hand, which is perhaps less from a military perspective, but from a political perspective, a big symbol. So not so much has happened in the last six months, which is a sign that Russia's counteroffensive was also not particularly successful. And now it's a little bit of a suspenseful waiting time, a little bit waiting for Godot, waiting for Ukraine's counteroffensive. So we expect that Ukraine will launch a counteroffensive in the warmer months? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the expectation. Um, and it's uh, probably later than initially was expected. So it definitely didn't happen in March. Also because Ukraine needed time to incorporate all the new weaponry that they have received from the West. So it just takes time to train those. I mean, the first um, Leopard tanks have arrived at the end of March. So it takes time to train these um, these weapons, to train the troops. Um, but it's pretty simple that we will see a Ukrainian counteroffensive. Do we have a sense of, of where that counteroffensive might take place? I mean, some, some analysts have said that it's uh, they, they expect it to take place along that southern corridor connecting Russia and the Donbass to Crimea. Is that where you would expect it to, to happen? We don't really have a good sense of that, and everything is just speculation. So it doesn't really make sense to just add my speculation to the other <laughs> speculation because it's probably not going to happen where we expect it. Because, I mean, that's what Ukraine has been 
so good at in the past to do surprising moves. And obviously, they're also very concerned about operational security. Um, so uh, the circle of people who actually know what's planned um, is very small. And um, again, those plans might change. Yeah, I, th I think uh, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky said that there are only five people with knowledge of where that counteroffensive exactly. might take place. So I, I guess neither you nor me are in that group of five. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one revelation you're talking about, uh, talking about Ukrainian armaments, one, one revelation that we saw from the, the Pentagon intelligence leak uh, is that the U.S. expects some of Ukraine's most important weapon stocks to be depleted by the middle of May. These are uh, surface-to-air, medium-range missiles primarily. How accurate does that assessment seem to you? I mean, mind you, those reports were from late February, early March. Does that still seem to be the case? And are Ukraine's foreign supporters capable or even willing uh, to rearm its armed forces in time? Yeah, they've definitely tried. I mean, they've been scrambling in the last months, not only um, or not when it comes to not only when it comes to surface to air missiles, but especially the question about ammunition and artillery shells and so on has been uh, big on and has been high on the agenda. So, for instance, the European Union committed to deliver to Ukraine, if I'm not mistaken, about two billion um, worth of uh, two billion euro worth of ammunition. So there is a scramble to sort of keep up with reality on the ground, which is why, exactly as you said, these leaks are a little bit of a time shot of a certain period of time and might not reflect the situation as it is right now. I mean, they certainly signal that the U.S. side has been very cautious and obviously wanted to make clear to the Ukrainian side that this is a tough, this will be a tough counteroffensive, which is different to the counteroffensives that Ukraine has conducted last year. So there's certainly a big awareness of that. But this doesn't mean that Ukraine has little chances to to be successful. Uh, on the on the willingness question, I mean, you know, you referenced that that last moment, that last uh, counteroffensive, which saw Western governments really flood Ukraine with with not only words of support, but but tangible, you know, weapons and, and munitions. How important is it that Ukraine can show that it still has momentum on the battlefield? I mean, could this be their last chance to prove that? It is incredibly important for exactly the reason that you say. I mean, 2023 is the year, it's the best window of opportunity that Ukraine still has to advance because at the end of the year, or probably already in summer and in autumn, we will have discussions about support for Ukraine in the US. In 2024, we will have the US election season. And I mean, Europeans are doing their fair share but in any, they can't in any sort of comparison on any magnitude, um, can they compensate for um, a reduction of U.S. support? So overall help when it comes to military, humanitarian, financial help for Ukraine um, is on a similar <clears throat> on a similar level than uh, as, as U.S. help is. But on military support, the U.S. is so far ahead for Ukraine that any reduction in U.S. support would not be something that Europeans could easily match and could allow Ukraine another counteroffensive in 2024. So that's why this one is really important, not only for public support, but also for defining what the end game will be. Assuming the offensive is as successful as Ukrainian military planners say it will be, what could that mean for additional weapon systems? I mean, are, are Europeans considering sending fighter jets, for instance, that we know the Ukrainians have been clamoring for? Well, yes, at the moment we have Soviet-style fighter jets, um, and actually it's one of the 
few examples, but one of the good examples where Germany has very quickly approved the transfer of those fighter jets from Poland and, and Slovakia to Ukraine, um, which is a good sign because Germany has been um, yeah, one of the countries that has uh, has been holding up uh, transfers um, from German origin. But we do see that with a new German defense minister, there's actually some momentum there to avoid these kinds of um, delays. Um, on Western fighter jets, so far it has been the UK that has committed itself to deliver those. But they've been very clear that those are fighter jets that are meant to help Ukraine in a post-war period. So they don't want to have those fighter jets in Ukraine now, but they see them as a security guarantee for Ukraine um, once the war has calmed down. So, Liana, you wrote a series of essays for, for foreign affairs that uh, last year that ask, among other things, what if Russia wins? What if Russia loses? What if Ukraine wins? And what if the war in Ukraine doesn't end? After 14 months, uh, almost to the day, which of those outcomes seem most likely to you? I think it would probably be a mix of two outcomes. So what I'm skeptical is that we will see a full Russian military defeat in Ukraine. So the liberation of all of Ukraine's territory, including Crimea, would really be a very tall order. I mean, not talking about the escalation risks, but just in, in, in conventional warfare from the Ukrainian side, it would be quite quite a challenge. Um, on the other hand, I don't think we will have this kind of you know, forever war, as it is often called in the U.S. domestic context, because Ukraine is really successful and it is more successful than Russia has been. So what we might see if Russia is not willing to negotiate in earnest, what we might see is sort of a new line of contact that runs through Ukraine, which has to be fortified and where Russia tries to attack again in the future, but we will. Um, the intensity of the fight that we've seen throughout the last year is, if Ukraine is successful this year, probably likely to calm down because we will not see this really battle for for territory anymore. But we will likely see a new fortified line going through Ukraine. So I think Ukraine will have its victory, but it will be probably less than its full territory, at least by military means. Um, and we just have to assume that Russia will not let go um, and they will continue to at least try to re-attack Ukraine, which means that Western supporters will have to arm Ukraine to 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 hold the ground for a really long time. We'll come back to the way that Europeans are, are, are seeing this issue, but could Ukraine accept an outcome uh, that you just described where, where battle lines are, are hardened inside its own territory and that it doesn't recapture all the territory it's lost? I think it's domestically incredibly difficult because so far in opinion polls, most Ukrainians say they would not accept this kind of um, compromise and negotiations. But I'm quite confident that if there's one person who can actually change the mood and to convince Ukrainians that, of course, Crimea will not be given up, um, that that is uh, President Zelensky, um, because he is still so popular, he has still so much authority in the country that he hopefully could sell a situation where um, Crimea will be part of negotiations, where there will be a kind of future solution and future hope for Crimea, but not necessarily a military um, reconquest. Today's show is sponsored by Power Corridor. 
power corridor is the intersection of Wall Street and D.C., where money collides with power. It's where elections are decided, corporate dynasties are born or they die, and the decisions that shape the future of the United States are made. Written by Leah McGrath Goodman, an investigative journalist with a long track record of disruptive journalism, and brought to you by The Daily Upside, Power Corridor is your key to understanding the people and forces shaping our world. Check out the link in the show notes to learn more. Okay, so let's let's pivot to how uh, the war is impacting European security, both the way that Europeans are preparing for a potential conflict and the way that they're thinking about their own security. And so let's start with your home country, Germany, at the center of Europe, uh, which promised early in the war to reinvest in its military, which has for years suffered from from underfunding. That might actually be underselling the situation with Germany's military. <laughs> How is that project going? Yeah, so actually it was three days after the outbreak of the war that the German new new German Chancellor Olaf Scholz um, gave this this famous speech at the German Bundestag where he announces radical change in uh, German foreign security policy. Which may, no one, may I? Is it is it Zeitenwende? Yeah, which no one can pronounce in the outside world, but it's a, it was actually very good. <laughs> how you pronounce it, but it's <laughs> so that's that's how it's called a changing of times. But what we have to keep in mind is that back then Russia was still very much um, anti portas so it was at the gates, right? I mean, there was a perception that Russia w- could still overrun Ukraine. Um, so that's where the urgency, um, that's where the urgency of the moment came from. And what we do see is that Germany's past paradigm, basically after 1990, was a paradigm of military restraint. So Germany was always very proud of a culture of civilian power, of military restraint, and nothing has changed that. Not Germany's involvement in Kosovo, not Germany's involvement in Afghanistan. This remained the main sort of principle. And we do see that military, that this has changed. So um, there were a lot of speeches, speeches from leading politicians who said, well, military restraint is not what we will lead in the future. Germany needs to step up to become a security guarantor to protect its neighbors. And those times where the military was considered as something you know, dangerous or evil, those times are very much over. So on the commitment side and on the ambition side, this all sounds great. (laughs) On the implementation side, it looks a little bit different because um, getting to 2% um, and Germany was at 1.4% before is for a country with a GDP of Germany, a huge shift, which is why at the moment Germany operates through a special military fund to reach this 2%. But even there, I mean, buying equipment, um, getting the contracts to the defense industry is all, I mean, takes time, but it's also very slow so far. So um, at the end of last year, um, only a little bit of that fund has been spent at all, which means that the 2% for Germany is still something which will not be reached um, this year and probably, I mean, hopefully perhaps next year. So, I mean, there's still difficult trade-offs to make for Germany, especially at some point, the question is, which other expenses in your budget are you willing to cut if you want to increase your defense budget? And if you don't sort of outsource this in a special fund, which doesn't have anything to do with the regular budget. So I could go into all these little details, but I think the the bottom line is the ambition is there. 
But the urgency and the implementation and also the leadership, there's still a lot to wish for. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this, this word again because you were so generous in, in complimenting the way I said it the, the first time. This Zeitenwende, clearly German leaders are, are seeing this invasion as a turning point. How about regular Germans? I mean, is this, is this the sort of socio-political transformation that will get people to, to sign up for service and, and really fundamentally change the way that Germans view military power? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So what we've seen in opinion polls so far is that Germans support the policies um, of increasing defense spending, of supporting Ukraine, of reducing dependence on Russian gas and so on. But when it comes to the question, should Germany assume a military leadership role, Germans are still a little bit freaked out by this term. I mean, <laughs> military leaders, everything that, you know, um, pushes the wrong buttons of historical memory in, in Germany. Um, so there is still some work to do. What makes me optimistic is that we have sort of a kind of domestic permissive consensus for that. So apart from the fringe parties, the very left party, the very left party and the very right wing party, um, all other parties agree on the need to spend more on defense and to change Germany's attitude to the military. Um, and that will hopefully slowly trickle down and transmission to, to the German population. But I think for the, just to add, I think for the German Bundeswehr, for the German army itself, it was quite a shock because before you were in the German army, not really expecting to have to fight for your country. And now they saw all, you know, their colleagues um, a couple of hours away from Berlin actually entering this fight. So it posed a lot of very serious question that, you know, put uh, the, the the question of territorial defense very much back into the center. How, how did you grow up thinking about German military power, out of curiosity? Well, my background is a little bit different because my parents emigrated from the Soviet Union. So I arrived in Germany when I was very young. Um, but usually I probably had the same kind of process that many had who considered themselves in their youth, you know, to be... Um, against everything, you know, <laughs> a little bit of um, uh, uh, where thinking comes from, you know, being a rebellious teenager <laughs> and uh, Che Guevara, Che Guevara is kind of cool. So all these kind of things. I mean, there's a lot of skepticism towards the military. So I remember at, in my school, um, there was only one person, one guy um, who took the choice to go to the military after school. So there was back then at the time, there was this one mandatory year of service for um, for male Germans. Um, and most did some kind of civil service, you know, helping the elderly and so on. There was only one person who went for the military service and no one could understand it back then. I mean, it was completely, <laughs> it was a big question mark. Why would you do that? Why would you go to the military? So I think that's that's how many grew up at the time and with the lack of understanding how important security and defense is because we grew up, especially my generation, in a golden age of the 1990s um, where there were the Balkan wars in Europe, but there was not a feeling that there would be any threat perception returning to Germany and to right. Europe. Yeah, quite, quite the opposite. That was sort of the, the golden years of European security. Not only did you have a, a receding Soviet Union, but you had an ascendant American partner that was there to, to guarantee everything for you. Yeah, absolutely. So Schultz is, uh, we talked a little bit about uh, German Chancellor Olaf Schultz. His French counterpart, Emmanuel Macron, uh, I knew you, I, I know that you knew we would, we would come to him, uh, <laughs> made waves earlier this month 
by by visiting China and and really distancing himself from the United States' more confrontational approach to both Russia and China. Taking these one at a time, does Macron's position on Russia align with the the positions of his European allies? I mean, are, are, are Europeans writ large eager to see a negotiated settlement to the war? No, I don't think so. And um, Macron has been sort of very contradictory in his remarks about the war. So he has irked Central and Eastern Europeans when he talked about security guarantees for Russia. So what's always sort of the case with Macron is that he thinks ahead about the future, about concepts, about ideas, but he says these ideas and concepts out loud in situations where, you know, if a French president says something, it, it, it it's not like a think tanker saying something, right? So um, the former journalist Wim Montas called him once a think tanker in chief. And I think that's a very good description, which makes it, again, very problematic for Central and Eastern Europeans to trust Macron um, and to, uh, yeah, and, and for him to have any credibility and also any followers in Europe. Because his, I mean, his idea is that through disruption and through provocation, he can sort of enhance debate, which is certainly true, but then it's only for the sake of debate. It's not for the sake of what actually Angela Merkel has been very good at, um, creating coalitions, creating followers, and finding some policy approach uh, within the EU that um, all 27 can agree on. And that's a weakness of Macron. Um, and because uh, in the end, what he wants, strategic autonomy for Europe, is not necessarily itself bad. I mean, it's actually something that the United States should want too. But the way how he portrays it is um, seems to be that, you know, Europe is the extension of French power. And that's what European strategic autonomy should be about. And it's also between the US and China. And that's obviously some kind of equidistant relationship. And that's obviously something which not even Germany does not agree with, but especially Central and Eastern Europeans do not agree with at all. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I saw um, Polish Prime Minister speaking at the Atlantic Council last week, uh, and saying that, you know, not only does he not see eye to eye with uh, France and Germany, he doesn't see eye to eye with some of his closest former partners in, in Hungary. You know, they were part of the, the Vichy, they're, they're currently part of the Visegrad group, um, and that those fractures exist too. So there's not really this coherent vision, right? I mean, I'm left with the impression on this Russia issue, and we'll come back to China in a second, that Europe is lacking those two important things a coherent strategic vision and a credible leader like. Uh, like Angela Merkel. Am I, am I right about that? Yeah, I think that's the most interesting part uh, in sort of this war, because what we've seen in 2008 and 2014 was sort of the German-French engine at work. I mean, in 2008, it was Sarkozy who was, you know, running the show in Russia's um, war in Georgia. In 2014, it was very much Merkel that was running the Normandy um, format and the Minsk negotiations. And one can be sort of very critical of that, and Central Eastern Europeans have been, but there was some European leadership war. And what we see now is that US leadership is back, which is great because it's very successful. I mean, it's very good at keeping allies together. It's doing a great job at alliance management. But in the end, it increases, and there Macron's analysis is right, it increases the dependence on the US, or to say it differently, it makes it either easier for Europeans not to leave their comfort zone and to go through Washington instead of agreeing among each, amongst each other on, on any compromises or any com common vision. 
Um, and one can say, well, it makes sense because this war is just too big to have a European leadership role. It's too risky. I mean, it's a real land war. But it is still disappointing to see that the outcome of the war, to some extent, has brought Europeans closer together on the views on Russia, but to some extent has also deepened the divide between Europeans and their trust in each other, um, that they would come to the, not only come to the defense to each other, but that one can rely, for instance, from a Polish perspective, on France and Germany as a security provider. They would always opt for the US, whatever comes. Brings up a, a funny hypothetical of, of what if the, the US president was more isolationist than the current US president is? What would that mean for, for European leadership? I'm afraid it would be really bad. <laughs> I've, once, I've, I've, I've once done a policy game on exactly this question. And the result was not that Europeans sort of pulled together and decided to do a European umbrella, a European nuclear umbrella, whatsoever one can imagine. But the result was that, you know, those who hold those countries who were fine, like France, said, well, okay, we are fine. We have our own nuclear umbrella. Central and Eastern Europeans would try to strike in this policy game a special relationship with the US. I mean, convincing the US that it should place nuclear weapons, perhaps on Polish soil and so on. And Germany would be sort of lost in between. So it would be a little bit everyone looks out for him or herself in Europe and less everyone pulls together. Um, this might change. I mean, this was a couple of years ago before the uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine that, that I've done this policy game, but still it was quite disillusioning. Yeah. And, and you mentioned it earlier. There are now 18 months until the next U.S. election. So a lot to figure out between now and then. Uh, back to Macron's visit uh, and, and, and on China. Are European leaders aligned with, with Macron's posture towards Beijing? No, that's certainly not. Um, but there is also no common European position. On, or it's sort of in the process of being developed. Um, and what uh, Ursula von der Leyen, the commission president, tries is she tries to position herself as someone who's not a hawk, who's not advocating for decoupling from China um, or is not advocating to follow the US and everything um, that they are doing towards China. But she really pushes an agenda of de-whisking, um, sort of reducing the kind of vulnerabilities that we had with Russia in the past, which are even greater with China. Um, and the interesting result from Macron's trip was that she seemed sidelined in Beijing. She joined him. But given that Macron has, has, has given these statements, he suddenly appeared to be a dove. I mean, he suddenly appeared to be very soft on China, which in the end could result in a, to a, into a situation where actually von der Leyen's approach becomes more of a mainstream consensus approach because she suddenly looks like a more reasonable voice in the middle. So it's an ongoing process. Um, there's no... European position on China. Um, but the battles are fought right now, and it's uh, very fascinating how they are fought. Uh, you, you mentioned the, the de-risking point there and, and how, I think, sort of remarkably, Europe was able to move as quickly as it, as it did away from Russian, Russian imports, specifically fossil fuel imports. What would de-risking or what would a decoupling of Europe from China look like? Is that even possible? No, I don't think it's possible. And I think it's not even possible from a US perspective, because the interlinkage with China is, um, is, is, is just too big. And that's, I mean, that's fine in principle. I mean, if it's good for the global economy and for the economies of those countries, there's nothing 
I mean, inherently bad in trading with China. The only question is, well, how do you prevent that that China weaponizes the vulnerabilities that you have in the same way that Russia has weaponized the dependence? And with Russia, it was basically just oil and gas. With China, it is much broader. It's also a question of um, the, the the export market, which is so important, especially for the big German companies. So it would be, I mean, obviously, everyone would suffer if there is a conflict with China. But the question is, how much would you suffer? Would it be sort of a fatal, um, uh, a fatal damage, or would it be something which is bad but manageable? And I think that's very much where von der Leyen is heading to. It reminds me of uh, that great line. I can't remember who said it, but that you know, over the last thirty years, uh, Europe has outsourced its defense to the United States, outsourced its. Uh, uh, energy needs to Russia and outsourced its economic growth to China. Right now, those all seem like risky bets. Yeah. Uh, but Leanna, last question. We've talked a lot about what ifs during this conversation. Let me pose one more to you. What if Europe can't get its act together? What if they can't figure out a defense strategy in time? Well, I think in the end, then we will probably then we will be sort of dependent on on where the United States is headed. Um, as long as there is a strong U.S. leadership, it probably the the damage um, that Europeans can't agree amongst each other is still sort of manageable, right? Because the United States will still be there in security and defense, and even sort of on the economic side, um, uh, the U.S. would continue to a little bit babysit the Europeans as as they've done it in the past. But the real challenge is what, again, as you as you already suggested, a more isolationist president comes in. And there Europe becomes incredibly vulnerable. And that that's also where Macron's idea of having Europe as, you know, one pole in the world is in principle nice. But he is totally overestimating his role, France's role, and also Europe's power. So he thinks already 10 steps ahead of what he wants to see as a vision for Europe. He's very good at visions without sort of uh, laying the groundwork that is needed now. Um, And again, that's a good reminder for everyone that things need to be done. And it's good that someone addresses it uh, in public, but it doesn't help to get these things done. Well, lots to sort out, so I'll let you get back to it. But thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much for tuning in. You know, it's still hard to believe that in the year 2023, there's a, a land war in Europe. But there is. And and for a while, it seemed like the war in Ukraine, this incredibly shocking and traumatic event for the continent, seemed like the catalyst that would help Europe learn and relearn two important lessons. The first uh, being that national or regional security can't always be so easily outsourced overseas. And the second, that without common purpose, often a common enemy, It's not easy creating policy in large geographically and ideologically diverse democracies or or democratic blocs. I thought the war in Ukraine would be the catalyst that would help Europe achieve the sort of strategic autonomy that European leaders like Emmanuel Macron have, have been dreaming of for a decade or more. But now, as the war potentially moves towards a stalemate, I'm just not so sure. If you liked this conversation, please leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or tell a friend about us. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Monday.